Does anyone work here? I'm sick of doing this. Can anyone hear me? Hello? Yes. How may I help you? What took you so long? I'd like to leave, please. May I please have your access number? You know who I am. I came in with my friend Chris, but I think he left. Right. But I'm going to need that number to look you up in the system. Can't you just let me out? I've done all of them, many times. I'm sick of it, and I'd just like to go. Did you try being Malcolm? Malcolm Jones? Yes, I did the Malcolm Jones one multiple times. What is everyone's fascination with that one? He's poor, but then becomes rich? Who cares? I don't know. People talk about that one a lot. It's one of the most popular. What if you tried... I've tried all of them! The peasant, the titan, the farmer, the tycoon, the woman who loses everything over and over and still pushes on. I've been teachers, preachers, cult leaders, monks, punk rockers, rap superstars. What about animals? They're so boring. A bird is fun for like five minutes. The flying is great, but then you just stand around on branches looking out for bigger birds the rest of the time. And you have to peck everything with your face. It hurts. Any world where I don't have to constantly be headbutting things is better than that. Okay. Well, if you give me your number, I can tell you what your options are. One, five, two, three, one, eight, zero, seven. Eight, zero, seven. Okay. Oh, I see. Your friend Chris. Oh, wow. He achieved gold medallion status. He uh, gifted you all his credits. What? I barely know that guy. That was nice, though. Can I gift them to someone else? Unfortunately, no. Looking here, you had a few negative scores in your runs, and you can only gift credits if, one, they were all earned by you, and two, you have only positive scores. What do you mean, negative scores? Runs where you made more negative choices or impacts than positive ones. Like, for instance, when you were Mike Johnson, you hit a drifter and drove away. And that made the entire run negative? I also coached a soccer team. Yes, killing drifters and just anyone or anything in general... That's going to make it much more difficult to obtain a positive score. Damn it! And this guy Chris was like an angel? He was pretty great. Lots of very simple lives, always helping people out. He hardly even killed any bugs. Whereas you... Jeez, you killed more humans than he killed bugs. I thought it was a game! No one told me any of those things mattered. 
It looks here like you even killed Chris in one of your lives before you guys came in here together. Oh, that piece of shit. So he set me up? What do you mean? He was just all fake nice, shooing bugs out of his house and whatnot just so he could gift me all his credits and keep me trapped here just because I killed him once and hurt his feelings? That's one way to look at it, I suppose. How else could you look at it? Well, given to your own decisions, you didn't really consider how your actions would impact other people. You gave in to your basest desires. Throwing prostitutes overboard from your yacht after they do deed on your drugs? Things like that. I thought it was a game. Well, maybe Chris thought you could learn some lessons by going through these. Oh, that is absurd. I have been so many children who died young. I was that old goat herder on the mountain like 50 times. He lived to be like 90. You're telling me that was negative? No. You lived many positive lives. It's just that the negative ones prevent you from passing on your credits. You'll have to use them all up before you exit. And how many do I have left? Let's see. 622,318. Fuck! And how many is each life worth? Same as before. Most animals are one, whales and dolphins two, humans three. Come on! There's no way! What are my options? I can't go be a salesman again. I, I just can't. Well, if you decided to learn nothing and were just incredibly terrible, you'd knock some credits off faster. Yes, I'll do that. Or I could set your account so that if you live 1,000 positive lives in a row... You could gift someone your remaining credits, or just cancel them or donate them back to the arcade. How many credits does hitting a drifter take off? You're not even going to consider the second option? How many? Ten. Yep. That's for me. Unless... Ooh, oh, ooh. What if I'm a badass dolphin that just kills a bunch of stuff? Still just one credit. All right. That is terrible news for drifters. I'm going in. And yes... This is going to suck for lots of people. But just remember, Chris and his fake good heart are really the ones responsible for what's about to happen. Is there any way I can talk you out of this? This may reflect poorly on the game and drive player numbers down. Dude, the game already sucks. People aren't even going to notice me as I'm ringing up all these negative credits. Wish me luck. I hate you. Oh, I need a new job. Hello, and welcome to the Space Cave, a big warg to all of you Spaceburgers out there. I'm David Huntsberger, and this show is me sitting down and having conversations with people I find interesting. A lot of times it's scientists, artists, perhaps it'll be you. Who knows? But uh, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy it. And if you like stand-up comedy, I have a new album out called Big Nothingness. You can stream it wherever you find stand-up. You can also watch it as a presento. If you go to davidhuntsberger.com, there are links to both the Vimeo and the YouTube version. Vimeo, no ads. YouTube, uh, for free. You have to watch some ads, but you get to watch it completely for free. So if if you're interested in something like that, davidhuntsberger.com. It also has a link to buy tickets for a show this week, November 7th, 7 p.m., Minneapolis, Minnesota, at Acme Comedy Company. It's their 30th anniversary week of shows. I'm very honored to be a part of it. 
and excited. I'm looking forward to it. I haven't really done any comedy since things shut down, so that should be interesting. Uh, and if you listen to the show, which you currently are, uh, and maybe you're short on funds and would like to go to the show, get in touch. I'll see if I can help you out. Um, and the best way to get in my good graces is by supporting this show. And you can do that through patreon.com slash spacecave. Bonus content, behind-the-scenes things, little extras, extended chats with people. Um, and it just helps the show. So I appreciate it. Okay, let's get into our episode this week. This is a conversation I thoroughly enjoyed with a gentleman I met like 15 years ago. And we would see each other from time to time in Austin at shows. We would even grab a meal from here and there. Uh, and then we, like people do, kind of lost touch. And then I did his podcast recently, and I really enjoyed it. And he has a PhD in rhetoric, a subject I knew very little about. So I was excited to chat with him. Here is part one with Dan French. All right. Well, let, I guess we should get into uh, what what rhetoric is. Two two chats between us go fifteen years, no communication, then boom, chatting away, <laughs> just gabbing you and I. And yeah, I, it's like co-stalking. Yeah, like agreed upon stalks. That's really <laughs> what a friendship is, I guess. I suppose so. Yeah. Where are you? Oh, I'm here. Okay, good to know. But it's it's less like in depth. We're like, yeah, yeah. But but when are you gonna be home? Like, what? Uh-huh. <laughs> just 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 like the preliminary, just gentle. Like, okay, need to know where you are. We're, we're having a party later. I just want to make sure you're in town. You know, there's like that part. Whereas, if I guess a stalker would be more like, I, I got to know where you are, and you're thinking about me, aren't you? I don't. <laughs> I, don't I don't know what the psychology i don't know what the i don't know what the stalking etiquette really is i don't don't really know the ins and outs i think everyone presumably goes through some period where they can recognize what it takes to be so infatuated with someone that you are quasi-stalking them people will gently say that like oh i'm online stalking you or oh i scrolled through all your you know whatever your posts your pictures but if from the era of landline telephones if you're yeah, just sitting you used there... to have to work to stalk, right? <laughs> like it used to be effort. You had to get out of the house and yeah, and maybe that's why stalking wasn't. Or I don't know if it's gone up or down. And not to make light of it, because I know plenty of people that have dealt with it. It's awful. And but but thinking of like at times when I was like expecting a call from someone, I didn't get it, and then you'd like see them at school just having the time <laughs> of their lives, and you'd be like, "Hey, what hey. happened?" And then there's a part of you that would go like, what if I, I, I should have probably driven by their house last night. Were they having fun? Were they just ignoring me? And then of course you don't. Maybe it's only because you had to leave your house. But there's also another part of your brain that's like, well, that's, that's a little crazy. Let's not do that. And people that stalk just sail right past that voice. They're just like, oh, sh- shut up you. We're getting in the car. And that's a, that's yeah, a bummer. I don't really know the psychology of it, but it's certainly intense. Right? Yeah. I think we all, I think we're, that's like the closest psychology that every person can get like somewhat familiar with and understand the step that they don't take. Because we, we all know what that feels like to be expecting an answer for someone. And then nowadays, like you see them tweeting nonstop where you're like, okay, they clearly have their phone. They're clearly <laughs> not without the ability. Ah, whatever. They're living yeah. their life. You know, that you get busy with your own things. So you, you can understand I think like. kind of social teaches you that, like to, to how to be ignored how to be ghosted. Like it's yeah. not as intense once you've been through it a bunch of times. You're like, eh. 
I get it. And Hollywood teaches you because Hollywood has an ethic of not responding with no's. hundred percent. No, they just don't say anything. I, I booked this show here in town, or I live in Los Angeles, where I went out of my way to always respond to everyone if they emailed me. I would get approached from all the different uh, outlets, and I would ignore most of them. But if people emailed me, I always responded, even if it was like, hey, I don't, I don't think your style's right for this show or something. And I, I knew that sucked for them to get, and they're probably walking around right now with a grudge toward me. But the longer they're alive, the more they'll be like, I, I appreciate that I got an answer. Because you do get, like you're saying, you get so used to being ghosted and then thinking back to times in your life where it really mattered, where say you did want someone you're interested in to call you, you've like forgotten their name. You just, the longer life goes on, the more you're so used to that feeling that you you realize it was not even that important. It's not like you have that person's right, but face In some ways, in. right, that's more psychologically comforting to know how to to expect ghosting as part of, that is one of the options that is out there. And it's just some people do it. And in some ways, like actually getting rejected, like, why is that better? It's like this whole thing about, I don't want to be broken <laughs> up by text. Yeah. Text is a lot less intense and activated than, no, I want you to look at me face to face and tell me why I'm inferior and you don't choose me. <laughs> why do you want to intensify the experience? I don't know. I suppose if someone is capable of doing it and they don't, I'd feel like a little, well, they could have. But nowadays, <laughs> you I mean, look at us. We're on Zoom. We, we could not really do this chat and record it without a lot more work not that long ago. And so if I had, say I suffered a loss and you sent me a text, hey, I'm sorry to hear that. What I'd be looking for is like, what's the grammar looking like there? Were you just kind of like... <laughs> Like brief. that micro judgment of the communications, right? Yeah. Is, and it, it all goes through development. You know, I mean, you start looking at like rhetoric, like the, the, every new platform, every new communication technology that comes out, it goes through an aesthetic development, a normative development, what your, your expectations are, and then it evolves. And that's why like with texting, people used to try to do like, you know, real intense conversations. Then everybody realized, oh, this is a horrible idea <laughs> to do by a text. Yeah. You can't, you can't put all the micro stuff in there. Yeah. And so they just kind of stopped and then evolved a little bit. Yeah. I mean, the the emojis and everything it's evolved into now, I think are just response to what you, know, you and I know it through seeing comedians complain about these things on stage. So, And then you see a crowd reacts. So you're like, okay, we're not alone or that person's not alone when someone writes with periods and commas someone might be reading that being like oh they hate me and the sentences might have said looking forward to seeing you can't wait you know blah 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 and they yeah. like, there wasn't even a single exclamation what's going on huh. i guess they hate me and so now it's just like emojis and so excited and, and ways that no one talks as we as we first of all is this rhetoric what we're doing just just trying to dissect things or how would you define it so there's a lot of different angles to defining rhetoric what you're talking about really is um in communication studies called meta meta signals meta cues okay like there's messages around your messages that tell the receiver how to decode them how you intend it to be decoded and that's why emojis are so good it's because they're very clear, you know, typically about whether it's positive or negative. 
you, you only have a small range, but it's literally a meta signal that you send on top of the message to tell people, hey, this is a joke or this isn't this isn't real. And in real life, you can do that in a lot of different ways with your tone of voice. You know, comedians are art artists about this. They, you know, the body position and the whole deadpan thing about being able to send irony by being non-communicative. Mm-hmm. But if you actually look at those guys, they're doing all sorts of little micro things to tell you, oh, this is this is irony. <laughs> <laughs> the but when when you see those little micro things, so going back to what I was saying, like the move toward emojis and as we get away from body language or the things that you'd pick up on, now you're just seeing them in a text and you're picking up on these little micro things. A comedian that you reference, say whoever it is, they do it so beautifully that if they were then given film and television roles, they might car- that might have carried them through the audition to be that in that part. And then the first time they do that, like look over their coffee cup or over the rim of their glasses and whatever look they do so uniquely, it tra- it permeates through all of humanity. Where now we would just be sharing a GIF of that, mm. whereas in the past. You know, people would be just be doing it. They would be stealing. I think of like Matthew Perry from Friends and a bunch of people talking like, could this be any more boring? Or, you know, little things like that where right. now it would just be a GIF and you'd go, ah, okay. That's how I'm feeling. I'm feeling like this guy is doing it. This person is exactly encapsulating what I want to express to you right now. Yeah, and I think the superpower of actors has always been that, right? They can... They have so many ways to communicate things with their voice and their face and body positions and all that. That's one of the problems stand-ups run into when they try to move over into acting mm-hmm. is that they haven't developed that stuff. They've developed how to do monologue connection with an audience and they need the audience in order to figure out kind of how to say things. Yeah. And acting, it's all imagination. Like you can't play to the audience. Mm-hmm. You have to play to a camera or maybe a director or the other actor, but it's really a hard transition for standups to make. Oh yeah, I, I've I think people like Janine Garofalo and a handful of others, maybe even Adam Sandler, made that jump so smoothly. Steve Martin that it just felt like all comedians, Roseanne, can just jump over. They can just be actors because they're so funny. But then you see comedic actors who never did standup, and a lot of times they're so much better. And oh, I yeah. wonder, like, if it's is that just inherent that to me, it seems like more of like a genetic thing. They just over time listen to these little signals so that they were always kind of playing to an audience that wasn't there. But in stand up, when you get used to playing to an audience that is there, maybe you go away from what's in, intrinsically in you and you start Pavlovian, you know, style responding to, Oh, people like this. So I do this. Yeah. It's, you know, stand up has developed, in direct connection with an audience. And so it's kind of co-written. It's kind of co-directed. Mm-hmm. You, you learn all that stuff because the audience intensely tells you right in the moment, we don't like that. <laughs> and so it does get shaped like that. And I think part of it too, is this why actors typically take so long to learn that craft is because it has to be internalized and you have to play the entire s- setting and scene and everything inside your head. Yeah. And and you have to do it so well that it looks real and it feels real to you. So there's a lot of crazy stuff when you get into into that um, that world. But it becomes a superpower. So getting back to your thing about rhetoric, rhetoric is the hyper design of effective messaging. Hyper design of effective messaging. I'm going to write that down. 
Okay. So the core in there is effective. Like how do you do, how do you communicate effectively? And it can be, it's typically around persuasion. Like how do you send out a, an effective persuasive message? It can also be information or it can be aesthetics, whatever, whatever gets hyper designed to improve it, uh, consciously designed to do something, then that's really, that's the core of rhetoric. So my life mate handed me a book by Socrates, I think called Rhetoric, which I would guess is kind of the earliest. It's probably Aristotle. Um, oh, Socrates. yeah, probably is. Yeah. My bad. Yeah, I mean, heaven's sake. You, who am I talking huh. to here? You have a PhD in this. And <laughs> I glanced at the book and I, I guessed wrong. So Aristotle wrote this. I was going to flip through it and like just get a preliminary idea of what it was. And I thought, well, I'll just ask Dan. But if this is like the beginning of it where he jotted down some ideas, one, this this concept obviously appealed to people, but two, what in that very first stage was he noticing and saying? Was he recognizing like, oh, vendors, when they go to the market are doing this, what they're really doing is this because they have a desired outcome, something like that along those lines? Yeah, I'll give you a little micro history of the Greeks. Okay. So... Greek society was one of the you know first democracies, which meant you could actually get things done by public talk. Mm-hmm. And so they had it in their court system and they had it in their politics. And they noticed that, hey, the better you talk with certain techniques, the more you win. And so they started studying it. I mean, the Greeks' original trivium of education is uh, logic. Uh, well, it starts with grammar. Learn the language. Mm-hmm. Logic learn how to get information and then rhetoric, learn how to get it into other people, mm-hmm. like learn how to distribute that information in effective ways or, or perspectives. And so, you know, they had a huge tradition in that culture of using public talk to get things accomplished. So they started studying that too. Like, well, how does, how, what are the good ways of doing it? And the bad ways of doing it. And you basically had three schools. The, the sophists were, sort of traveling teachers. That's what sophistry means. It's, it's wisdom. Okay. So they would study the courts and politics and they'd be like, here are the techniques that tend to work. And then they would sell those courses to people. They would train the rich. (laughs) They would get hired by rich people to train their kids. How were they noticing it? How were they so tuned into this so early on to the point where they could approach? Because wouldn't you think a rich person would be a step ahead of them because they'd, they'd, achieved or they, you know, acquired. Now, these were very educated people. I mean, you know, if you go back and try to, like, if you tried to skim Aristotle and the rhetoric, mm-hmm. you'd have been like, oh yeah, there's a lot here. <laughs> you know, it's a super philosophical culture. So it's very dense. Even, you know, the fact, even though they had a lot of more simpler, simpler language when it gets translated, it's still very dense. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the educators were leaders of the culture. It wasn't the rich. Mm-hmm educators were right up there and, you know, philosophers and all that kind of stuff. So it was an interesting culture for that reason. But so they would get hired, you know, by the rich, of course, because the rich can always buy the best resources and, you know, teach my kids how to be a great speaker so that we can keep this power that we have and this money. And so the sophists were the original teachers. And then Aristotle came along and also taught this stuff. And then Plato came along. Actually, almost none of the original sophist writing survived. There's almost no writings of, from the sophists. What there is is Plato taking shots at the sophists. <laughs> so Pl- Plato hated the sophists for whatever reason or used them as a foil. I don't know. But he, uh, he, 
routinely wrote badly about them in his platonic dialogues. There's a couple of little good things here and there, but so essentially he said that they just teach technique. They don't care about philosophy. They don't care about ethics, whether it's good or not. They just teach technique. So it becomes just kind of sophistry becomes known as, you know, amoral, fancy, you know, high sophisticated talk. I'm reading uh, the word comes from. I'm reading this book by uh, Richard Feynman and he went to Brazil and kind of followed around and studied this university and he was invited to give his thoughts and he said he held up a book and he's like, I can just turn in, I can flip through anywhere in here, pick a point and know that what's written down isn't science. It's not physics. It is just memorization that whoever wrote this memorized and wrote down. And he does that a few times and it's like, yeah, like take this for example, they're talking about a ball rolling down a ramp. Da, 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 explains why they clearly didn't do these calculations at all. They just wrote this down. And one by one, students start going, yeah, that's all. I don't know any physics. I just memorize it. So they had a fundamental problem there. But he was, as Plato is to the sophists, kind of looking at it from like, I'm, I understand this. I, I'm not just – if you look now, like maybe you're on YouTube or something and there's, I'm going to teach you how to buy and sell real estate – it seems like the sophists could kind of do that. Here's how you talk. Here's what you say. Here's how you, but you don't actually think about it. You're not really investing in the philosophical, whatever that is to take a moment and sit there and go, how do you really think? What, what, it, what does your brain do when it chews on these concepts? Yeah, it's a lesser offer. There's a lot of different offers within education, like the memorization of technique and tactics mm-hmm. is essentially what you're talking about. And when I, in my books, I was, I had enough time during the pandemic to write a book and it was it was basically on Aristotle's main definition of rhetoric, which is rhetoricians see all the available means of persuasion, all the modes that you could possibly use, and they pick the right one for the right situation. Mm -hmm. Isn't that kind of what like psychopaths do too? No. So the first one, the first thing you got to have to have is the menu. Right. You have to know all the options. Okay. But let's and let's create a options, scenario. One set of options is unethical rhetoric. And that's what you're talking about, like psychopaths or whatever. You know. Well, I wanna work. There's a there's a, a like say there's a storefront and I I want to get them to commission some work, even though they strictly say like it has to be solicited or licensed. I want to just give it to them and get a commission from what they sell. And I want to put it in the storefront. And maybe I want to give them a little money to do so. So now let me, before I go into the storefront, I look at an unethical way to do it, which would be what? Well, when you split ethical and unethical rhetoric, unethical are things like people don't have a choice. Um, You pay people instead of using persuasion. Things that Uh, like the mafia would do. You use force. You... You yeah you usurp, usurp the you usurp the courts you corrupt the courts all the things that Trump's done <laughs> okay so yeah like a, a standard mafia kind of hey if everyone pays in it's going great oh you're not paying in how about we thump your skull with a bat and then you learn a lesson oh, and start yeah. paying then in. it's coercion you know then it becomes physical force there's a lot of things around persuasion and influence that are close I and mean, it's still affecting human beings but they're not influence like. Rhetoric and persuasion are language based. Okay. So, and this isn't like a how, this isn't you being a sophist saying, like, here's how you'd get it done. These are just looking at it from a rhetoric standpoint. And philosophically, I, I love that someone could watch this person standing there. 
there's a person standing there, maybe they got a, a thing of baguettes. And he, this person, so Aristotle in this case, maybe could watch and be like, ah, I know everything going through this person's head, trying to figure out how to get those baguettes sold in that store to gain a profit, but also do it with minimal um, time, effort, resources dedicated to the storefront. Certainly doesn't want to go to the city and apply for a permit and or lease their own storefront. Kind of want to do this thing that on the surface, really, you probably shouldn't be doing. This person who owns the storefront, they went through all those things. So they don't owe you anything, but maybe they try a baguette and they're like, whoa, this is really good. You're an artist at making baguettes. We want these in our store. But the person holding the baguettes doesn't know that. So they're processing <laughs> so all... How'd you get on the baguettes? This is a, <laughs> it's a very interesting application of rhetoric that very specific. Have you been trying to sell baguettes into stores lately or something? What I'll do is I'll just get going and then whatever pops in my head, I just got to lock in with it. So Like I'm in Italy now playing doing rhetoric somewhere in, in uh, Milan. Well, I was trying to think of a thing that might have been around early on. I know baguettes are more French, but something like in this era where, you know, it's the Greeks and people are walking around in these robes and having in-depth conversations, but there's still someone pushing a cart going, hey, I got some olives yeah, here. Well, this is the, the this is why I like rhetoric. One of the reasons why I enjoy studying it, it applies to everything. Mm-hmm. There's no setting where people are not trying to design their messages to make them more effective when they reach somebody else. Yeah. It's everywhere. Like we're doing it right now. You're trying to make yourself seem like a certain type of person on your podcast. You're managing your persona. You're managing your speech. I'm doing the same thing because we want to have control over that's called ethos in traditional rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And it has superpower in the, in the culture. The stronger your ethos, the more vibrant it is, the more people like you, the more you get. And so that's one of the super, you know, powers of rhetoric. It's one of the super locations. We constantly manage our ethos because it's very valuable. But what is it about us that makes us enjoy, oh man, that person is a straight shooter or just like what you see is what you get. We inherently trust a person like that. We would, we would let them sell their baguettes or we would support them if they ran for office or we would. You are not getting off that baguettes, man. You are (laughs) not leaving the baguettes story. I, I think it's a good touch point for like a want or a desire because you do any anything. Like you said, it's everything we do. You're trying to be your most authentic self, but you've lived a life where you've been at summer camps and someone talked or laughed a certain way. And maybe that just stuck a little bit because you like that. You don't know why. And yeah, every person does is a slippery concept. It really <laughs> breaks down really fast. Yeah. You see a lot of great standups who have... Like Brian Regan's a good example uh, of a guy who he's not who he is on stage. There are elements of Brian that translate to stage. But as I understand it, he was he developed that format of performing uh, in an acting class as part of an exercise. Like he amplified himself and it's a character that he plays. Mm -hmm. Just he plays it so well and it seems to match who he is authentically that people are like, oh, that's clearly him. But it's not. It's a public character. Yeah. Like Ron White was a cowboy comic with a black hat and a bolero tie forever. Yeah. And they brought in a um, somebody to consult on his look. And they're like, get rid of all the cowboy shit. Turn him <laughs> into a lounge singer. 
But you, at the core of that, wouldn't you say, you know, we'll go watch old footage. Stand-up's a good one. I can see why stand-up for you is baguettes for me, as we know. But for you, it's more stand-up because you can look and see what did this person turn into. I think the natural thing is like, well, some they're just looking for a way to sell their rhetoric or improve it or polish it. But we'd also maybe say, like, that's just what every human on the planet is doing. If you went and watched yeah. someone at uh, a footlocker selling shoes and they've been there for 20 years, like they would laugh at themselves and go, wow, look how I spoke. I was so different then. I looked different. Yeah. My hair was different. Well, managing your communication is natural to human beings. Mm-hmm. Try to maximize our communication to get what we want, which is certain reactions from other human beings. You almost never, like one of the distinctions that is useful early in learning rhetoric is rhetorical versus expressive. Mm-hmm. So expressive is the idea that you just say whatever is naturally inside your head and you don't edit it, you don't shape it, you just express. This is the artist. Ah, I'm just bringing it out to yeah. the world. And so that, it's kind of a continuum. There are people that are more expressive. A lot of times you don't even know what you're going to say before you say it. You don't know what you believe until you actually say it. Like, <laughs> and then you go back later and go, I don't know if I actually believe that. Why did I say that? Mm-hmm. And so expressiveness, for some reason, gets valorized as more moral and more authentic and natural. But uh, actually doing rhetorical work on your messaging makes it better, makes it more communicative, in some ways is more respectful to the person you're talking to because you shape it to make it good Yeah. before you just blather. (laughs) (laughs) I I know what you're talking about when people say, oh, sorry, I don't have a filter. As if like that's more genuine. That's you can trust me because I just whatever pops in my head, I say it. And you, you got to apologize. I have no filter, and it almost never s- a- equates to something eloquent or thoughtful or kind. Oh, it's, it's crap. It's yeah. just awfulness. Or you're like, oh. I usually point out that you know monkeys also do that. They just <laughs> they don't really seem to edit a lot. So I think that. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe they do, though. I'd have to study it. Maybe Jane Goodall would be like, know, no, right? chimps Maybe are... everything they chirp is being actually shaped. <laughs> how, do, how dare I say that about monkeys? I always I, So on your podcast, you try to use rhetoric to, to kind of talk with people that might have a different political leaning than you. And, I, and I'm, in my head, as like sort of an archetype of this person you're speaking to or about, I would think of... You see this definitely in Texas, really custom made. Typically they look, you can see the welds where it looks very handmade. Racks, like front end metal bumpers, big, tough bumpers with winches on them or a whole rack kit for like an overhead thing on the truck or maybe bed liners. But made, angle iron, grinders, welding. The person that made that would have to measure, cut, put some time, care, etc. into it. But then when they go to get maybe beer, if they were to go buy a beer that was made with the same level of care, that's ah, fancy stuff. Too refined, too thought out, too much care. I, I buy this mass-produced stuff. Their house probably not full of furniture from a place like an Ikea where it's just any idiot can make it. It's no. you know, Maybe they had like, oh, this is a dry slab that was cut from this type of tree and on and on. So on, on some level, as humans, we all care in one way or another, about things that are made with care. And yet, when someone's speaking, if it feels like their words are too carefully chosen or they've put too much into, like, this is my persona and I speak like this, we would kind of dislike them. They're like, you're thinking about it too much. You're not 
unfiltered. You're it depends not on off what the culture cuff. you're from. Like some, you know, if you're from an academic culture, the fact that people overthink and all that is positive. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is also the problem with rhetoric is that you're trying to maximize your message. And there are so many audiences. This is why social media is such a nightmare. Mm-hmm. There's so many audiences. You can't maximize your messages across those audiences. You can't maximize your ethos. You know, I've had people like I've been on podcasts before and had people be like, I, you know, I don't like that guy. He's he thinks he knows everything. I'm like, no, I think I know rhetoric. <laughs> yeah, you have a PhD in it. You're you're uh, qualified. You have a, a a very specific thing that allows you to speak on it and not look like some yabber, you know, jabberhead at a bar or something. Yeah. And it, it's very, like you've noticed. So in the book, I start the book with kind of, I, I do, I had to do a lot of this when I started working for businesses of these big concepts that sort of border the discussion so that we can actually think together. And one of them is that there's literally five levels of rhetoric. There's big mega theory of rhetoric all the way down to Pico, like the micro emoji, emoji things that we were talking about. Uh-huh. And so you move from like theory to strategy, to tactics, to situations, to specifics. And the reason why things get confused all the time in arguments is people are jumping categories constantly. Yeah. So if you really want to do logic, you know, and really have a, a very focused discussion to try to learn something and figure out who's right and who's wrong, you have to you have to singularize to such a small area and take your time to do deductive logic, which means you cannot move to the next sentence or even the next word until each piece is proven perfectly true. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, could you, would you take that on? Is that something? So let me phrase that differently from a bigger perspective in that, like, I talked with a guy once who was a, a military guy and he had no patience for the way the general population, especially young people, said um and like and or just didn't choose their words carefully. He spoke very capital letter, bunch of <laughs> words, period. Start another one. It was no wasted breath, no wasted words. And on some level, it was impressive. It's like, man, there's no cursing in there. There's not a word that isn't necessary to the sentence. And I'm even kind of trying to do it now. Because it was yeah, so you're, challenging. Yeah, you're, yeah, I can hear. You're specifically <laughs> slowing down to get each piece of yeah. the sentence clear. And he he really thoroughly disliked the um like so like um I was it like okay whatever you know the things people do. If you had someone that maybe they're a professor, maybe they work, but maybe in their free time they live in a forest in Vermont and they're tapping trees and they're just communicating with people that they run into. They see someone on you the mean river tapping Hello. in what. What sense there? You mean like <laughs> maple tapping? Yes, of course. Tapping. Of course, the maple. My goodness. <laughs> so yeah, they're tapping trees. They're getting their maple syrup. They got a, a, a beard and or, uh, you know, long hair all over their body, whatever uh, sex they are. And then they, they make come their into, own baguettes. They make them baguettes. Yeah, they go, to, go baguettes. Yeah. And they go to civilization. And you think of children being in every grade, but particularly when it starts to be a battle for like sexual, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, like the top of the pyramid, you know, competition. You're trying to outwit people, outsmart people, be the funniest, be the most charming, be you know, athletically advanced, whatever it is that's your thing. Kids are just 
in, invaded by other people speaking. So they're hearing all the words that's just rubbing off on them in a way they can't escape. Whereas Vermont tree tapper person can walk in and choose their words more carefully like the military guy and be, I would imagine, seeing society going, oh, whoa, I, I can't even communicate. It's like a different species. Now, if you're somewhere in between, but you've studied rhetoric and you have to, and you get hired by a company that's like, we want you to run our Twitter account. So you need to capture the perfect words that will be kind of goofy and lighthearted, but also pointed, also clearly angled toward marketing and do it in, you know, eight or 10 words. Is that something you could look at and be like, yeah, yeah, I can do that. I can be snarky and kind of capture the voice of an era, not a generation, because you see it through the ages. The old people now to fit in will be like, oh, that was, that look is fleek. Oh, grandma, no, that's not how you say fleek. <laughs> <laughs> could you, could you figure it out? Yeah, I think rhetoric is an arc. It's a software for figuring that stuff out. Like it's a really good auditing software, really. So one of the chapters in my book is on uh, developing an ecological perspective when you do rhetoric. Mm -hmm. which means every time you come into a situation, you break it into its parts, its rhetorical parts. So if I walk in somewhere, there's going to be a source. Somebody has to say the rhetoric, you know, and so I can look at that source and say, are they, you know, a positive or are they a negative? What do I need to do with that source? But the message itself is really separate from the source. Anybody could come in and say that message. If I change out just the source it can completely change the power or effectiveness of that message. And so if you have an ecological perspective, you're like, well, okay, maybe there are 12 or 15 things here that I can dial up or down. I can move in and out of the ecology to make this more, you know, maximized for my success, which is the other thing about rhetoric. It's trying to win. Yeah. That is the goal of all rhetoric is I have a goal. I have something I want to happen here. I want to get people to think, feel, do, or be something. And I'm going to use messaging to my advantage to make that happen. Okay. So it's, it's a winning strategy. It's an effectiveness strategy. Is there an element of like prejudice or bias? Maybe just that's part of all humans. You see a person dressed a certain way of a certain age, maybe they're, they're, the way they speak, even if they're asking the, the question is basically, obviously, would you like to buy these baguettes? But the way they're asking it, Vermont person versus a very cool 16-year-old, would you have an inherent bias if it's just you? Or are you able to kind of objectively look at it and go, okay, how do I, if you are, if your angle is, I want to win this. I don't want to buy any of these damn baguettes. Well, one of my, I just keep referencing things because I've been working on this stuff a lot for the last six months, but I have six sub stacks that I'm running and four of them are rhetorical sub stacks. Okay. And I wrote a thing today in the rhetorician's way is what I call it. So it's if you want to adopt the philosophy and the worldview, if you want to develop rhetorician goggles and see the world from a rhetorician's perspective, then yeah, you, you have to get rid of your own internal bias as much as possible because your aesthetics mean nothing to the receivers. Mm -hmm. Like you and I have very different aesthetics. I watched your stand-up special mm -hmm. and I've seen you do stand-up and creative things off and on for a long time. And it's a different aesthetic than mine. And I, I like it. I like, I enjoy it, but I couldn't do that kind of, uh, stand-up. Like you have a lot of space, a lot of times in between your, your symbols mm -hmm. and 
like I grew up in a different time of even a different type of stand up. Yeah. Like it's much more punch dense. Yeah. Than your stand up. And the punchlines are more obvious. You yeah. Don't like to hide punchlines. <laughs> yeah. And I would see, it, I think we talked about this on your podcast where that the changing of the era kind of thing is always ongoing. And so when you see someone show up, people used to do things where they'd, uh, they'd grunt or they'd hold the mic down or yeah, yeah. little cues and things, but there was definitely a punchline. And that's why I didn't shop there again, folks. And hey. if it felt too obvious, that's when you could get the or whatever from the back of the room. You could get, oh, or nope. Yeah, or stand-ups. Yeah, from stand-ups. Stand aesthetics are different than the audience aesthetics. Totally. They saw I've where... i got friends that are in their, like, 60s now who are still doing stand-up and making a, a pretty decent living because they can go around and do big punchline stand-up to audiences who need that. Mm -hmm. You know, your kind of stuff is more niche. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's built for a different audience. And so what... what rhetoricians try to do is use the software like it it shouldn't matter who uses the software the software itself should both analyze what's going on and suggest ways to win yeah and so like when the the rhetoric like the thing i was talking about the rhetorician's way i move up and down between the mega meta level and then the pico and then i also do it for liberals like i have a, pod, a newsletter called win blue it's like, if you want to counter what's going on in politics right now, ask the rhetoricians and they will design messages that do that for you. So <laughs> strategy, tactics, specifics, all that kind of stuff. But nobody knows the software, so they don't use it and they just kind of flail around and it's just hard to watch for a rhetorician. Because <laughs> it would be, so I, too, I do want to get into like the, the beginning for you. Because you, you're pretty, like, austere, minimalist existence. Keep your head shaved. We're in a black T-shirt currently. It's a very, like, all these things, these decorations or whatever they may be, these just encumber or, you know, they're, they're a nuisance. Did, did you practice, like, martial arts or you try to do, like, Buddhism? Or what, how do you get your mind centered so that you can not become emotionally swayed so that the software starts to bug out a little bit. So if you're presented with a situation, you know, has this always been how you were? Did you go through a period where you're like, oh, I was fighting in bars all the time and I had to, I had to find another way. I still fight in bars. That's my recreation. <laughs> you know, I, I'm a abstractionist. I'm a conceptual person. I like language. I like thoughts. I live, my, my dad was like this. It's part of my DNA and my family to live inside your head. Like my sister, I think, can go years without saying a word. And it's very active life in here, very circus-like, a lot going on. But it's it's just something my brain does. So I'm pretty good about just living in the abstract mm -hmm. and uh, just living within thoughts. Now, I don't let myself do that. I had two little kids. I had two kids that, you know, it's, it's a horrible way of raising kids. My dad never fought it. Like, he was just gone. You can tell. <laughs> He's not thinking about us at all. But so I... I Did he write the, books? Did he expunge no, he any a, of it? He was a carpenter he, um, or modeler. So he should have been an architect, but he didn't have the education to do that. But he basically did it, you know, as a remodeler, which is a high cognitive activity. Yeah. You and you're like, you can see it and you have to change everything. And Did he live so, with a certain amount of inner sort of 
angst or drive about that? Was there some turmoil? Was there like regret? I don't know. He never told me. I never talked to him. <laughs> but the, looking back, it seems like as a rhetorician that you'd there'd also be an element of like nature and nurture and kind of climbing back up the family tree as far as you can to be like, oh, that makes sense. Or, you know, yeah. empathetic. I don't find introspection very, very interesting. Really? I like extrospection. Huh. I'm fascinated with like all the little blocks that built it, that built whatever it is, the person, the family, the, you know, the, the structure, the system that we live in. There's just too much. There's, there's so much of it. Well, that's that's part of the thing, though. There's so many things to think about. That's why, like, introversion is one of the things I have moved off the agenda. Just like <laughs> metaphysics, I have moved off the agenda. I could care less about anything spiritual. <laughs> I have no interest. I don't have time. I, I don't like it. it. Doesn't interest me. Science, I have moved off the agenda because I don't. I'm not great at it. I don't. I have to work too hard. The things that are still on my agenda are rhetoric and comedy. Mm-hmm. kind of education, but really rhetoric and comedy. That's what I think about all the time. Well, it sounds like uh, to a certain degree, I mean, I guess rhetoric fits into this in politics and that like, I think people, if they are moving other things off the agenda and getting that in there is that like, there's a, there's a us versus them. There's a win and lose. There's a you're wrong. I'm right element that can be very contentious and negative, but there's probably also this part that I feel like you fit in more, which is like, hang on everybody. If we're able to just be civil about it, I think we can find some common ground. But that is a giant tree to chop down or hill to climb or whatever it is that would would seem like just running uphill in sand to some degree. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't do what you just said, which is it's a kind of a normalized, informal piece of rhetoric that everybody has for some reason adopted in politics of we should just have a civic, civic discourse here and be nice nice to each other and we can make progress i'm like well that's that's not the way politics works it never <laughs> worked that way it will never work that way and right now because of social media and things like that it's become just drowned like you will never get that right so why don't you move over to something that makes more sense where you can actually you know win or actually make some progress if you're trying to shut down the the trumpites and the 90 million conservatives you know, and radicalized right so that you can have a conversation with them. Well, good luck. Right. But just as much as they have zealots and, you know, these iconic figures that are the figureheads for their, for their, for a movement that people get that through late night television hosts and, or through, or just like the, the kind of, um, editorial period of the news on any of the channels where that person becomes or, and podcasts contribute it contribute a lot to it. This person become what they say I listen to. They make sense. They have it right. Are you worried about that at all? Like, cause if you applied your software correctly, you could become a kind of this iconoclast or a figure in this process that he's got the right answers. He has the truth. And that seems like you would look at it and go, Oh damn it. This software kind of backfired a little. No, 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 not at all. That software will never backfire. It is un- unbackfireable software. Okay. Because the software of rhetoric isn't ever about conclusions or outcomes. It's about process. And this is really where rhetoric wins, even in politics. And I have, when I have right wing people on or people that I disagree with, I've even done this with my daughter a lot because she's very millennial and very woke. And I, I agree with a lot of her inclinations, but the actual tactics and strategies she uses are not good. 
And so I have to bring her back and say, let's, let's look at process. I don't care what you believe. I care a lot about how you got to where you believe. And I also care a lot about how you try to get that belief into somebody else. And it's just process. Okay. So the idea of civic, civic discourse has been at the heart of democratic rhetoric for a long time, all the way back to the Greeks. You can't do public discourse on a civic discourse model uh, unless people are calm and will let you talk mm-hmm. and, and follow a certain set of rules that the right is not at all happy about trying to follow. <laughs> they don't follow any of them. Yeah. And why is that that like humanity... Go, was this just is this humans the greeks would have that too of like everybody if you just raise your hand you'll get a turn and people were like okay we can agree on that and then the moment it started they're like this guy's an idiot you're like guys we agreed on this there are rules i don't give a shit about the rules i want to win is that just humans well all these softwares are vulnerable yeah. right so no matter what system you choose it's vulnerable to competing rhetorics and this is why i tell people sometimes i don't judge the right for using nefarious or unethical techniques um, because there's vulnerabilities there and rhetoricians will exploit them. And we aren't just dealing with ethical people in the world. We're dealing with people who have a will towards power. And almost every minority group has a will towards power. And if it sees a way of getting power, eventually it's going to take it. The same way terrorists, like, ah, oh, you know what? We can't fight America, but you know, we kind of hijack some of their planes. <laughs> yeah, We can blow things up. Mm-hmm. And that's that's an alternative form of of power. And you see what the right did and started back in the 80s with Newt Gingrich and really went back to Nixon about just block government, just block the other side and slander everything they say. Like Nixon came from the the uh, McCarthy era. He was on the McCarthy Commission, which was call everybody a communist before anybody really understood what a communist was blacklist them and then watch them just implode their whole life yeah and nixon just took those tactics which are always available in politics of smear and slander Mm -hmm. and that's all look at trump he's a smear artist yeah he just smeared colin powell on the day of his death (laughs) what better he's like ah yeah powell's dead but he was a bad he did he was a right you know he attacked him at his own funeral (laughs) He doesn't care. He is a sociopath of smear. And it's just a rhetorical tactic. So if you know they're going to use this tactic, build an architecture that counters it instead of just sitting around and whining about it and going, oh, they're bad people. Well, of course they are. Now figure out how to counteract them. <laughs> do, you, do you have more time to continue chatting? Sure, man. Oh, great. Okay. Let me take a little break. And then uh, I, I thought of a thing that's better than the baguettes. We'll get to part two. <laughs> well, what did you think? I enjoy rhetoric. The more I learned about it and I'm continuing to learn about it, uh, Dan has a sub stack where he, can, he sends you like a newsletter with a lot of uh, thoughts and ideas on rhetoric and uh, – yeah, it's one of those things. It's like a whole new world open to me. I never really fully knew what it was, so that's kind of exciting. And um, stay tuned for part two. I come up with a better example, at least I think, and um, we get a little more in-depth into rhetoric. And I hope you're uh, okay with this arrhythmic release schedule with the show currently. I'll try to get back where it's every single Monday, right when you wake up. It's right there in your podcast app but for now it'll be a little 
uh, arrhythmic, but I just want to get in the habit of putting one out every week. And obviously the part two of each episode will be a little easier. Um, so bear with me for a bit here as we get to that. And then again, as I mentioned, Acme, November 7th, 2021, 30th anniversary shows. I'm on the Friday show at 7 p.m. Patreon, spacecave.com slash Patreon. Thanks to those of you who do support the show, and especially those who continued to during the hiatus when I wasn't even putting much out. I really appreciated that and continue to appreciate it. And I guess whoever becomes the first person back into the Patreon, I will send you, especially if you wear a size small, in t-shirts. I will send you a special gift at whatever level you get in at. So um, hopefully we'll start welcoming people back into that. I understand for it's going to take a bit to regain your confidence, but redone the studio where we record. It's much more convenient now, and I'm hoping uh, to get back on track. And so far, we've got a month straight of doing shows, so we'll just continue to try to do the same for November. Uh, and Patreon is great for... Uh, paying for things like web hosting, tech stuff, uh, buying beer, buying music, helping out Dan eventually. Dan Pritchard, who puts a show together from the goodness of his heart down in Australia. Uh, eventually, if we get enough Patreon people, we can start sending him a little money monthly, which would be wonderful. And um, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can contact pings at thespacecave.com and send ideas for guests, subjects, topics, etc., uh, types of beer, music, whatever. The best way to do that, thespacecave.com. And a thing I would appreciate if you get in touch about, if you have um, maybe one thing you're, you'd like to see is the show have as much inclusion and diversity as possible. That makes two of us. I want to talk with all of humanity. So if you know someone, if you are someone who feels like they're not as represented on this show as you'd like to see, please get in touch. Um, it's a big, broad world out there, and there are so many interesting people whether they are in science or the arts or whatever, I'd like to chat with all of them so we can help each other in that regard, and I would appreciate it. Okay, let's get out of here. This is a song by Autolux. It's called Plant Life. I hope you like it. Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave.